0: All right, let's open our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Our text this morning is Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 19. The topic, now in sync with God's way of thinking, Habakkuk compares himself to a type of mountain deer called the hind, who is driven higher and higher into the mountains by unrelenting danger. The title of our message, Great Hinds Think Alike. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time that you've given us. It's a brief time, a short time. That doesn't mean it can't be packed with meaning and value. And it will be, Lord, if we submit ourselves to your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. And Jesus, I pray that we would have the sense that you're walking in our midst among us, uh, pleased and excited, Lord, that we're here, giving us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The Sundance kid looked at Butch Cassidy and asked tongue-in-cheek, think you used enough dynamite there, Butch? While they're getting their bearings after the explosion, a second train arrives carrying a six-man team of super lawmen to pursue Butch and Sundance. They learn that the posse has been paid by Union Pacific head E.H. Harriman and is to remain on their trail until Butch and Sundance are dead. In the chase, the posse forces the two outlaws higher and higher into the rugged mountain terrain until there's no place else to go. In desperation, Butch suggests they jump into the rushing river below, acknowledging that the fall would probably kill them. I'm gonna leave Butch and Sundance on that ledge. You either know what happens next, or you're gonna have to watch that instead of football this afternoon. (laughs) Their flight up into the mountains, higher and higher, pursued by those wanting to see them dead, It reminded me to a certain extent of the prophet Habakkuk. He ends his book by picturing himself as a mountain hind climbing ever higher in order to evade the danger that is stalking him. There is, however, a huge difference between Habakkuk and Butch and Sundance. Habakkuk's climb takes him to spiritual heights where he can rejoice in the Lord despite the danger. There's no leap of faith into uncharted waters, only a settled confidence in the God of his salvation." There's going to be a time, or many times, when you are the hind. God will give you hind's feet on your high places from which you may rejoice in him as you climb despite the danger, despite the disaster. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, if you look behind history, you'll see God on the move. And number two, if you look beyond adversity, you'll see yourself on the mountain. Let's take a look behind history first and see God on the move. In the classic children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the characters and creatures sense that something profoundly spiritual is happening in their world behind the scenes, they sometimes say, Aslan is on the move. For example, in Narnia, it was always winter, but never Christmas. Unexpectedly, Father Christmas arrived with sleigh bells jingling. At once, the children and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver suspected that the White Witch was losing her powers. I've come at last, says Father Christmas. She has kept me out for a long time, but I've got in at last, Aslan is on the move. Now, Habakkuk lived just prior to the southern kingdom of Judah being overrun, overthrown, and its citizens taken away captive by the Chaldeans who ruled Babylon. God was orchestrating this after many less invasive warnings in order to punish and discipline his chosen nation for their heinous sin. The goal of his discipline was their restoration, first to relationship with himself and second to their land. Habakkuk looked out over this situation and he could see behind history that God was on the move for his people. So we put in at verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigayanath. Now this prayer of Habakkuk was meant to be sung as a hymn of praise. As we work through it, you're going to see three pauses marked by the notation Selah, which you sometimes see in the Psalms. It's a musical pause, or what we would call an instrumental interlude. Then at the end of this, you see the instruction, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. It is in the form of a song called a Shagayaneth. Now, there's some debate over the exact meaning of this musical term. Most scholars say it's a kind of lament or a dirge, Uh, but if you look at its last verses, you get the idea it's anything but a lament. I mean, Habakkuk is rejoicing in the Lord. Shagayaneth is a form of high praise. It's wild, it's rhythmic, it's exuberant. It's praise with pumped up volume and no limits. It's what we might call wow worship. Are you ever up late at night watching infomercials? There used to be, I don't know if there still is, I haven't been up late at night for a long time, but there used to be commercials for wow worship. They were all the most uh, effective uh, worship ballads and anthems of our time, you know, shout to the Lord and that kind of thing. And it was called wow worship. And I thought, well, that's very appropriate. Well, that's what this is. That's what this song is. And, And any musical accompaniment to this that makes it sound dreary and sad is just not doing it justice. Now, while we're on the subject, I would ask all of us, do you sing with exuberance to the Lord? Now, I know what you're going to say. You don't have a good voice. You don't have to tell me. (laughs) Now, I'm joking with you at your behalf. But some of you just say, well, I don't like to sing. I don't have a very good voice. I can't carry a tune in a bucket. You know, Moses, remember Moses? Moses told God, I can't really represent you because I'm slow of speech. He had some kind of a speech impediment. And God said, that's not going to stop me from allowing you to minister for me. I'll just have Aaron speak for you. So you tell Aaron what you want to say, what I'm telling you to say, and then he'll uh, tell Pharaoh. Nevertheless, as you read through the account of Moses, you find that Moses wrote a song, and he sang it, the Song of Moses. So it didn't stop him. If you can't sing very well, let's say you can't, Think of yourself like Jim Neighbors, TV's Gomer Pyle. Do you remember Gomer Pyle? First on the Andy Griffith show, and then later he had his own show. He was so popular. I was watching an episode this morning as a spiritual preparation for this morning. He was telling the sergeant that they better not paint the barracks because it was going to rain. And he goes, how do you know that? And he did some kind of weird country dance that he does that tells him that it's going to rain. He goes, golly, sergeant. But Jim Neighbors, when he would sing, remember how he would sing? This dupe, you get into it, you know. Then sings my soul. You think, man, where did that come from? He's a completely different person. Let me tell you this when you sing to God, you, to us, you may sound like Gomer Pyle. But to God, you sound like gym neighbors. And so give it your all and come before the Lord. At least don't use the fact that you can't sing as an excuse. I've just obliterated that excuse. We'll do others later. So that's how God hears you. So sing to the Lord. Verse two, oh Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk was understandably afraid. No one could be anything other than afraid at an announcement that Judah was going to be taken captive to Babylon. Habakkuk spoke of Judah and the captivity, he said, it in the midst of the years. He may not have known the exact amount of years the captivity would last, which were 70, but he was praying that in the midst of them, God's discipline of his people would give way to mercy and that he would revive his work among his people. What work? What work? Well, the work of delivering them and establishing them as his special nation through whom the Savior of the world would be born. In verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk remembers the work of God among his people as he was on the move behind history to deliver them, and he especially focuses on their deliverance from Egypt in the Exodus and their conquest of the promised land. And so beginning in verse 3, he says, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah, his glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Taman or Taman in Hebrew can mean south and it is also the name of a city of Edom, the country lying south of Judah. Mount Paran is the desert region south of Judah extending to Sinai. God is poetically depicted here as coming up From these regions, and Habakkuk is probably recalling God's covenant with Sinai or with Israel made at Mount Sinai when He revealed Himself to them. He says in verse four, His brightness was like the light; He had rays flashing from His hand, and there His power was hidden. God's revelation of Himself to Israel is being compared to the sunrise. It comes slowly, then it bursts over the horizon, sending its rays, as it were, upon the earth. And again, this is a description of God's appearance to the nation at Mount Sinai. Uh, The gist of this section is to see God moving to save and to establish his people. In verse 5, before him went pestilence, and fever followed at his feet. God had delivered Israel from Egypt, you remember, by the ten plagues, summarized here as pestilence and fever. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. God is pictured as surveying Israel's march to the promised land. He himself would startle the nations that stood in their way. Nothing could halt their advance, not even the mountains and the hills. And so this is a very powerful way of looking behind the history of the exodus and seeing that God was advancing for his people, no other nation would stand against them. Nothing in nature could prevent them from getting to the borders of the promised land. Verse seven, I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. The nations east and west of the Red Sea, represented by Cushion and Midian, trembled in fear as God's people marched because they knew he marched with them. Verse eight, O Lord, Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Now, this has to do with God being revealed in mighty and miraculous works as He turned the Nile River into blood, as He parted the Red Sea and later dried up the Jordan River for His people. These physical obstacles to the deliverance and advance of his people became instead their chariots of salvation. I mean, just the incident with the Red Sea. Here, millions of Jews and all of their livestock are up against the Red Sea with one of the most fierce armies in the world at that time on chariots pursuing them, Egypt's army with Pharaoh at the head. And all of a sudden that Red Sea parted and they went across on dry land. That's what is being remembered here along with the Jordan drying up, along with all the other miracles over water. Then he says in verse 9, "'Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows.'" Selah, you divided the earth with rivers. God here is first pictured as a bowman ready to strike out against the enemies of the Jews. I have to think about Legolas in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. He never misses, have you ever noticed that? And he has like 35,000 arrows in his quiver. He's going, and it's crazy. And so God is portrayed as a bowman as if he was surveying any danger from any direction and able to deal with that the uh, fighting for them. Uh, It says here, oaths were sworn over his arrows. That's a reminder that God had made oaths, or we would say promises, to protect his people. This advance, this march through the wilderness was not dependent upon the people. It was God who said, I am going to bring you to the promised land, and he was working to do it. And he also provided for them He divided the earth with its rivers. This is probably a reference to the bringing forth of water from the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness, providing a gusher of water for both man and beast. And so they were out in the wilderness, and like I said, there were millions of people and all of their livestock, and there wasn't any water. Hence, it was called a desert. Uh, And they cried out to Moses, and Moses talked to God and God said, strike the rock. The second time he told them to speak to the rock and water gushed out. Not, it's not like turning on your hose and everybody coming up for a drink out of the hose, which is gross. You know what grows in your hose? You don't wanna know. But anyway, so quit doing that. Uh, but anyway, uh, or maybe you need the immunities. Maybe we should all after church go drink out of the church hose. <laughs> but uh, I mean, this was a gusher Coming, You didn't want to be near this thing when, when it came out. Uh, and in the New Testament, just to finish the story, uh, Paul the apostle said that rock that followed them was Christ, giving them living water. And so that's what's talked about here. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. This is a way of saying all of creation was understood as being in submission to God on behalf of his people. Whether they would come across a valley or a mountain or a stream or a river or an ocean, whatever it is that they were going to have to cross or face, God was going to deal with that. The sun and the moon, verse 11, stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, at the shining of your glittering spear. This, of course, is the incident in the book of Joshua when the sun stood still as Joshua was uh, making conquest of the land. The light of your arrows and the shining of your glittering spear are references to the flight of Joshua's enemies as a result of hailstorms, perhaps accompanying the lightnings on that great and glorious day. Verse 12, you marched through the land in indignation, you trampled the nations in anger. Verse 12 could be on the book jacket of Joshua. It is exactly what happened as Joshua led the Jews to conquest. You remember... As they first crossed over into the promised land and Jericho was the first strategic city that that needed to be taken, the inhabitants of Jericho were terrified of the people of God. They were huddled inside, afraid, because they knew God was for them. And if God was for them, who could be against them? Now, this summarizes the past works of God on Israel's behalf, God moving in history The next several verses probably summarize the prophesied works of God on Israel's behalf when he gets around to overthrowing Babylon. Mind you, Habakkuk is writing at a time before the Babylonian captivity, and really before the Chaldeans have taken control of Babylon, but he's looking ahead not only to their being in control, not only to them taking Israel captive, but to their downfall and so in verse 13 you went forth for the salvation of your people for salvation with your anointed you struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck Selah. you thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages they came out like a whirlwind to scatter me their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret you walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters when he says for salvation with your anointed It means that God would deliver the Jews and he would establish them because it was through them that Jesus Christ, his anointed servant, was to be born and save mankind from their sin. And so, though Israel failed God, God would not and could not fail Israel. There was always a remnant of believers, no matter how the leaders of the nation uh, how, how much they tried to, in one sense, destroy the nation, God would step in, working and moving behind history because the anointed must come through the nation of Israel. And then notice the mention in verse 13 also, you struck the head. Babylon is depicted in Scripture as the head of gold atop the kingdoms of the world. And so that's why we see this as a prophecy that God would strike down Babylon. Babylon. God would walk through the sea with his horses. History records that Babylon fell as the Medes and the Persians blocked the Euphrates River, which came in under the walls of Babylon. You know, I don't know how many impregnable cities that there have been or uh, you know, cities that nobody could get into. Think Troy and the whole Trojan horse thing. There's, uh, history is littered with cities that everybody thought were... Totally defensible, and then some genius figured out a way. And so, with Babylon, uh, while they were enjoying their drunken feast, and the Medes and Persians were camped outside, somebody came up with the idea of, of uh, damming the Euphrates River. They dammed it, the water dried up, and the Medo Persian army came in underneath the city and wiped out the, ba- the Chaldeans. The only possible physical response to God's mighty and miraculous works is trembling whether you're a believer or a non-believer, but the only possible spiritual response is resting for believers. Verse 16, it's a mini-sermon on suffering. It draws dramatic, seemingly contradictory contrasts. While in the worst possible trouble, such that you tremble, you nevertheless rest. While being totally overwhelmed, you confidently declare God will conquer your enemy. How does that make sense? Well, it makes spiritual sense in your experience with the Lord. My favorite example, I use it all the time. It's a great one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends in captivity in Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image of gold that he wants everybody to bow down to and worship. Uh, These three Hebrew boys say, hey, we're not going to do that. We can't do that. Nebuchadnezzar gets upset. He says, I'm going to throw you into the burning, fiery furnace and kill you. Uh, And they say, basically, our God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. That's the attitude that Habakkuk has come to. God is able to deliver me, but if he doesn't, I've already been saved, and so what's the difference? Let me provide an example closer to home. One of the dear sisters here in our fellowship just came through a terrifying medical ordeal. She spoke to me about it on Wednesday night, letting me know that as it was unfolding, she nevertheless experienced God's perfect peace. She was literally at rest in her day of trouble. And so we sit around, we think, what does that mean? How am I gonna do that? You don't need to be doing it until you're doing it, and then God will give you the grace for it. Uh, What we go through sometimes as human beings is terrifying and terrible, but we can also rest in it because of the presence of the Lord. Because of God's mighty works to deliver them, Habakkuk was confident God was on the move and that in the midst of their trouble, he had a plan he was working out for his glory and for their good. We're not Judah. We're not Jews. We're the church. God has a plan for us. It's a plan no less dear to his heart for a people no less loved by him. His plan is for us to go into the world and as we are going to share the good news that Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. He has promised that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church on the earth. That means this work will continue until he comes for us. He told us he would return for us to resurrect us or rapture us, and he'll bring us to the homes that he's been preparing for us in heaven. But Jesus also promised us that in the world we would have tribulation, some of us more than others. But for all of us, trouble of various sorts will eventually be our lot in this life. Whatever you or I must endure, we know, do we not, that God is on the move. We tremble, but we rest. We are troubled, but we know our enemies are conquered. Now, secondly, if you look beyond adversity, you'll see yourself on the mountain. A few years ago, it became popular to hang framed motivational posters in your office. Don't tell me if you have one or not, but some you've seen them or some of you have them. They feature a single motivational word with an inspiring photo above that and then a clever saying below it to to inspire you for the day's work. I prefer what came next called demotivators. Here are a few of my favorites. Picture this, I I didn't write down the picture, but these these are the posters. Believe in yourself. The rest of us think you're an idiot. (laughs) Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. (laughs) This is a good one, I I agree with this one. Meetings. None of us is as dumb as all of us. Think about that for a minute. And 90% of the meetings you've been to. And this is my all-time favorite. It shows a grizzly about to snag a salmon swimming upstream, ambition. The journey of a 1,000 miles sometimes ends very, very badly. (laughs) Now, the reason demotivators work is because we all recognize that simply having a positive mental outlook captured by a saying isn't enough in a world whose prince and ruler is the devil. And a lot of times, we've talked about this before, but a lot of times when we're trying to encourage other believers who are going through serious struggles, we kind of give them a motivator that is more like a demotivator because it's so simplistic and, and it doesn't really speak to the issue. These last verses in Habakkuk are not wishful, positive motivators. They aren't an attempt to turn lemons into lemonade. They're a description of the minds of the imminent and unrelenting danger you're gonna encounter that drives you to deeper and deeper spiritual devotion. It'd be better to tell, but if somebody comes up to you today and tells you what kind of trials they're going through, it'd be better to say, God is giving you hinds feet on high places. He's driving you up into the heights of spiritual understanding. I would be terrified too if I was going through that. But uh, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God will deliver you or he won't. And if he doesn't, you're already saved. These describe how God, if you will cooperate, will give you hind's feet on high places. They're about him giving you the strength, the spiritual strength for the climb, no matter how high up you may be required to ascend. Things were not going to get better for Habakkuk and those in Judah and Jerusalem. Here's verse 17. Imagine this as a headline. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Extra, extra, read all about it. If your life and livelihood depended on agriculture like it did in 7th century Judah, this would be the worst headline you could read. It meant a complete collapse of everything that could feed you or sustain you, and it would leave you destitute for years to come. Now, I'm ignorant when it comes to economics, so are most economists, so I'm in good uh, company, but I've been taking notice of a trend lately of articles warning us of another economic collapse. Headlines like this, 10 key events that preceded the last financial crisis are happening again. And then there was this one, which I think is a bit of an exaggeration, but how plunging oil prices could lead to World War III. I sure hope those are exaggerations, but whether or not lower prices at the pumps is a sign we're headed for trouble, I think we all know that trouble is always just a heartbeat away. Habakkuk and the Jews would, in fact, experience, as I said, a total collapse of their society. Worse, they'd be carried away as captives to the rivers of Babylon where they would weep. How should they live? Well, verse 18. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Again, you can't see this as Habakkuk gritting his teeth and saying, I will rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> I've heard this put to music before, and it's, some of them are like, you know, just, I will rejoice. I mean, It's terrible. Habakkuk speaks of joy, and he speaks of rejoicing. It was because he had joy that he could rejoice. Let's look at his joy first. He joyed, he said, in the God of my salvation. Salvation in the Bible is threefold. It's the moment you receive the Lord by grace through faith and are saved. It's also the ongoing growth of your life with God as he keeps you and completes the work he has begun with you. It is also your final arrival into his presence when you'll have a glorified body free from sin uh, and those kinds of things. Habakkuk had joy realizing and resting in his salvation. Despite circumstances that were awful, nothing and no one could affect his salvation on any of those three levels. He was saved, He was being saved as he walked with the Lord, and he would one day be totally saved. And there's nothing on earth or above the earth or under the earth, uh, no principality or power that can touch that. Now, I would expand this idea of salvation to include God's desire to save the lost. The Apostle Peter wrote, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, It means God goes to great lengths, even delaying necessary judgment in order to reach out to sinners. You know, people who accuse God, especially God in the Old Testament, of being uh, cruel, the word I want to use is capricious, but I don't know what it means. I think it's the right word. Uh, they, they, They always start with a situation like Habakkuk. And God just saying, hey, I'm, I'm upset today and I'm gonna send the Chaldeans to destroy you. They don't start at the beginning. And that's where you need to start with Israel's history and see God's deliverance and protection and provision. And, and, and you can hear him promise the Jews he would bless them for obedience, but that he, like any good father, would discipline them for their disobedience and when they went beyond his loving boundaries and committed sin. And if you get the real history of Israel, you see that God had been uh, ministering to them and and urging them to repent, sometimes in their history for decades or centuries. Those of you who are parents or who've uh, brought up children, did you do the count? Did you count to three? Did you count to 10? Because I know that before you have kids and you're at Save Mart and people are in line doing that, you do that one more time. I'm going to count to 3 if you don't put that can't take that candy out of your mouth, rewrap it and put it on the shelf. <laughs> and you and I we sit there and we go count to 3 when I have kids they're going to obey the first time because I'm going to be the greatest parent in the world. <laughs> what a joke. You're a liar, is what you are, so <laughs> Sometimes you just, you're just exasperated. You want to count for yourself. You're counting for yourself. Like, I'm going to count to three because otherwise I'm going to lose it here, you know? <laughs> so we do it. Now, God, he just happens to count to 10,000. In that sense, he's kind of a bad parent, you would say. I, I say that reverently. But what he did, he would send Israel plagues and pestilences and famines which he told them in Deuteronomy were warnings that they were backsliding. He would send them prophets. Sometimes they killed those guys and he would send them more prophets in order to warn them of what was happening. Eventually, after the kingdom had split in two, Israel in the north, God allowed, he raised up the Assyrian empire to take the northern kingdom captive and destroy its cities to show Judah in the south That was what's coming next if you don't repent. Finally, God got to 10,000. And he said, okay, at 10,000, when I reach 10,000, the Chaldeans are gonna be in power in Babylon and they're gonna come and they're gonna destroy. But even then, they came three times. Three separate invasions. You'd think somebody would have figured it out. And then God finally took them into captivity and there he kept them safe so that he could restore them to a relationship with himself and so that he could restore them to their land. So that what? So that the savior of the world could be born, the savior of all men, especially those who believe. That is the God of the Old Testament. Start from the beginning, not in the middle of the story. Our God saves. While his long-suffering waits, wickedness and evil are allowed to continue, but more and more, men, women, and kids are saved. I hope you see now how Habakkuk could, in his trouble, rejoice in the Lord. He had the joy of his salvation, and knowing all of these things, he could honestly, positively rejoice in the Lord. Now, I prefer verse 19 in a more poetic King James version, which says, "'The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like Hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments.'" One of the first devotional books I read as a brand new believer was Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard. Anybody read that book? It's a classic. It's just my observation, not very scientific, but it seems that Christian authors used to talk more about joy and rejoicing despite your troubles, enduring suffering, whereas now all the popular books are more about finding your best you and your own personal happiness in the Lord. And you know what? They're not going to cut it. That's not the book you're going to reach for when you get the diagnosis, when you get the call, when something terrible happens, because it's not going to be your best you. You're going to need God's best you. Now, the thing to note about verse 19 is that God does all the heavy lifting. He is my strength. He will make my feet like those of the hind. This is more of a promise than it is a preparation. It's what God can and will do not what I must find the strength to do. I really can't wake up tomorrow and deal with the total collapse of the economy in our society. Maybe you can, but I don't think any of us can. I can't even handle the aches and pains of old age in a strong economy. I'm I'm losing it. The Christian life is God living in me and through me. I need his strength, his empowering 100% of the time. The Christian life isn't a 50-50 proposition where I give half and God gives half. I give nothing. And God does 100%. Only then can I enjoy the places I find myself as high places where I am in fellowship with him. Now I'm not saying we simply let go and let God. That's not what Habakkuk did. He prayed, he watched, ultimately he submitted to God's will. That's our part, simple cooperation. We just go along with God to pursue spiritual disciplines like prayer, submission in every area then my life and your life can become his song. Here's what I mean. The Old Testament prophet Zephaniah wrote, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, Zephaniah is describing Jesus in his second coming to the earth during the kingdom of heaven on the earth. But I rather like this picture just in general. Um, it, it, again, it's very parental in the sense that it's like a little child who's scared at night, you know, terrified of the boogeyman and all of these things. If they only knew what was really out there, they'd, they'd super be scared. But, you know, they think somebody's in their closet. It's just sully. But uh, anyway, uh, and you come in and you soothe them. And sometimes you sing to them with your terrible singing voice that they love, right? And, and you soothe them to sleep. And this is what Jesus does He sings over us. Uh, he'll do it in the millennium, but He sings over us all the time. Uh, calming us, giving us rest. Since Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can confidently say he does this for us. Now, in the New Testament book of Ephesians, there's also a description of believers as God's workmanship. And the word workmanship is our English word, poem. And so you and I are poems, and it's not a stretch to say that we are poems set to music. Since the Lord likes to sing so much, uh, and, and we see David The man after God's own heart wrote tons of psalms. Your life and my life are like a song being sung. So the Lord sings to us and our lives sing to him. And so the question would be, what would our life, what would my life, what would your life sound like if you could hear it as a song? Well, it ought to sound like a Shagayaneth. It ought to be wow worship. It ought to be high praise to the God of your salvation. Amen?